Psalm 23. Let me read for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're speaking this morning on the relief of being a slave to Christ. It's an unusual um, title. It's an unusual little two-week series that I've been doing. So last week I spoke on slavery to Christ, like how we are slaves to Christ. And I made a case, I tried to make a case for that quite clearly out of Scripture, where there's this idea in Scripture that we are somehow owned by God that we have been bought by God, bought with a price, but not, not like a slave standing on a box and being bought with rands and cents, but bought in a much more deep way by the love of God into a place where we are willing, happy slaves, where we give ourselves in this slavery. We are, we are His to direct and to use as He wills. And in our sermon last week, we took time to just say to one another, I am His slave. His will is what I want to do, these kind of things. And then we ended off by looking at how even Jesus, even Jesus, God himself, pushed into human form and coming down here on earth, even Jesus himself submitted himself to the will of the Father. In some sense, a willing slave. We see Jesus saying, I only do what I see the Father do. In other words, I'm not free to just do whatever I please. I'm not free to run around, whatever, whatever I want to do, I just do. My time is not my own, Jesus says, I do what I see the Father do. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in a moment of great trial and in a moment where he might want to do something different. And he says, Father, is there another way? Because he's thinking about the cross and he knows it's coming tomorrow. He says, but not my will, but yours. You see the submission. Not what I want, not what I want for my life, not my desire, not my hope, not my avoiding this moment, God, but what you want for me is more important. And then we looked at Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was God, it says, did not consider his equality with God something to cling to, is the version we read. In other words, even in his godness, he says, I'm not going to cling to my right to be God to avoid this moment, but instead I'm going to submit into the Father's will in this moment. It's quite a profound idea. I'm not going to re-preach it. You guys need to go and, and grab that on the website. It's YouTube, on Spotify. We, I think on pretty much most of the platforms you can go and catch that up. And I really encourage you to do it because it will help you to balance this one out. You need to hear kind of both of them together. And this psalm has become so precious to us, just as the guys are praying for us, um, even as we, we on this adventure and we're on this journey, as a family, we're busy learning this psalm together. We're learning to meditate on it. We're learning it verbatim. Even little Annabeth here can do half of the psalm already, word for word, in terms of the, the actual trying to learn it, to get it into our, into our hearts. And it's a very, very precious psalm for us right now. But the, the big idea for today is simply this, we are all slaves. 
We choose who or what we are enslaved to. That's the big premise that I'm making. And my contention is that I would rather be a willing, happy slave to God than the other options of what slavery could look like. And a note of caution here, just as I, I start in this whole idea around slavery, and we unpacked that a little bit more last week, but it must be clear that we are slaves to God alone. That's who we are slaves to. Any other is craziness. You're not slaves to a pastor in a church. You're not slaves to a church itself. You're not slaves into any other space, but you are slaves, willing, happy slaves to God alone. Let me read for us again. The Lord is my... Is this feeding back or is it just me? Just me. All right. Slatham. Someone... Who was telling me this week they used to sit in class and um, all of them would hum and drive the teacher crazy just because you couldn't see their mouth moving and they just would just hum and the teacher didn't know who it was and the whole lesson was just this buzz and the poor teachers. Anyway, the Lord is my shepherd... I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, whether you believe this to be true or not, imagine being completely at the command of a God like the Bible describes him to be. This is a critical Junction in understanding Psalm 23 and, and many, many biblical concepts. Let me try and help us to grasp it. Imagine, just in an earthly sense, imagine if you had a parent or if you had a very dear friend or a spouse or someone that you loved very dearly, but I want you to imagine that that person has never sinned in their entire life, not once. Never. Okay, so that already eradicates all our friends, anyone you've been married to. <laughs> Imagine that person had never done one selfish thing. Not once had they thought of themselves above you and put themselves first. Never had they ever had a wrong motive for doing something to you. Not once. Who loved you in the most complete way, without a hook. You know what I mean by a hook? Nothing in return, no demand, no hook love. Not as a result of any of your behavior or anything that you've done to earn that love. Not only do they never sin, but imagine that this person doesn't just have a perfect sinless life, but they also know everything about you. Imagine they're all-knowing, right? And they still love you fiercely. They never misunderstand you, not because you're not confusing, but because they are profound in their understanding. They never misread your motives. Even when you think you're doing something good and actually your motive is wrong, they know that. But when you're doing something the other way around, they know it. They know your motives. When someone says, this was your motive in this thing, and you say, that wasn't my motive at all, this person knows what your true motive was. Imagine they didn't just know all things and have a sinless life, but imagine that they didn't just tell you about their love. They didn't just write you post-it notes and make you breakfast and try and show you through these love languages, but they demonstrated it in the most amazing sacrificial way, literally willing to show you their love by dying the death that you were meant to die. So you're supposed to go and die, and this person dies 
in your place. Let me ask you, how safe would you feel in that relationship with that person? How happily would you follow every command if truly you began to understand that this person had never had a selfish motive toward you, never misunderstood you, perfect in every way, willing to die for you, surely we would be absolutely convinced of our heart, their heart toward us. And then wouldn't it be, I mean, obviously, right, I'm not talking about an actual person, just in case. (laughs) We're talking about God here. That's That's the metaphor. But wouldn't it be crazy not to see a fitting response to this kind of person as saying, I am your willing, happy slave. I am yours. Tell me what to do. Show me how to live this life. We, we don't have to imagine this kind of person. We have this. We don't, we don't have to try and make our parents this, this unattainable. We have it in Jesus. This is what we have. It's true and committed and, and proven. And when we read the Psalm 23, King David, who wrote the Psalm, he knows this about God. He's grasped this about God, and he's writing from this place. And simultaneously, we'll see just now, he's pointing. There's a whole lot of pointers going forward into Jesus and who Jesus is, right in this Psalm 23. And here's, here's where the relief comes in. Water's going all over the place this morning. Thank you so much. So we should give those out. I mean, I don't know how many waters I need, but... But this is where my title comes from. When we, when we begin to grasp how good God is. Just now we're singing that song, You are who I... I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. And I don't know if this is true for all of us, but in my life, the two places where I've seen the devil attack me the most is around my identity, who I am, and disqualifying me because of who I am. That's one of the constant things that the devil will keep on coming into my life and saying, Paul, this is who you really are. You're not this person. You're this person. That's the one. And the other one is to diminish who God is. God's not actually good. God's not actually kind. If you give yourself in any kind of willing, obedient slavery to God, this is what he actually wants to do with you. This is what he actually wants to do with that power. So here's our big idea again. We're all slaves. We choose who or what we are enslaved to. I want to read you um, an excerpt from my diary, which is a bit risky because I don't particularly like sharing this. Not even Kate really gets to read this. Um, But I just felt when I was preparing, this was from August last year, and um, I was away, and I was just journaling with God, and I'd had some quite deep stuff going on in my own heart, and God was searching some things inside of me. And, but it, it lays the platform because it's actually these last two weeks of preachers, this morning and last week, actually come directly from this, um, these two pages, this moment that I had with God. Um, as I went to bed last night, I felt somewhat overwhelmed by trying to find all the roots and to figure out all the emotions, etc., that I'm feeling. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was prompting me to just surrender everything again to God. I prayed that, and then it felt like all through the night I kept on waking up and was reminded of the surrendering to God, and so began again in the night to verbally surrender myself to God. 
Lord, I want to say it again now as I write, everything I am, I surrender to you. My hopes and dreams, our future, my failures, it's not just your positive things, my failures and my sin and everything I know I'm afraid of and everything I can't even get my own finger on, I surrender everything to you. Not one particle of my mind, body, soul, and spirit over which you do not, cannot declare, this is mine. I surrender confusion and uncertainty and every insecurity to you. I surrender trauma and pain and everything that has happened to my heart in these years. I surrender responsibility and work and everything I've ever achieved and will ever achieve and even what I just hope one day to achieve. White flag, battle over. I am your frightened but relieved prisoner. I look to you now to defend and protect me. I look to you to keep me safe and to lead me where you choose for me to go. I have no rights as your prisoner. You feed me. You sustain me. You put me to work as you please and as you see fit. You move me where you would desire. That's come more true than I would have imagined. I surrender all of me to you, Lord, all my strategy and planning, all my plan plotting and paths, all my lies, all my pretenses, all my sin, all my shame, I give all of it to you. All my wounds, all my hurts, every evil committed against me and every evil that I have committed in return, all of it, your Lord, is yours. I roll it onto you, every talent, every gift, Every natural ability, I strip myself of it and bow low and then try to bow still lower still so that I can fit through that precious, worshipful place of surrender, the eye of the needle. All my wasted time, all my projecting onto others, all my attempts to please others and to please you, Lord, and my desires to be seen as intelligent and gifted and somehow able, I give it all again to you, Lord. Please accept it and help me not to pick it up again, to keep laying it down again and laying it down again until one day I find that your ocean has washed it all away for good. And that day is the day when I'm dead. And I've said au revoir to this world. But from that place, this thing began to birth in my heart of the relief of being a prisoner or a slave to God. And what it means. And so let's, I'm not going to take much longer on, on that. I want to dive in. Just two things I want to say today. The relief of being God's slave is the first. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that mean? Simply it means provision. Provision. If you are, consider being a slave or consider being a prisoner. Like actually, like in real life, right? Whose account is your food for? The guy sitting in prison didn't go and work for his food. It's someone else's account. Consider your daily needs. Consider food. Consider drink. Consider shelter, where you live. Consider your clothes. These are not small things. These are not minor, kind of like luxurious extras. These are the major kind of building blocks of life. And if we look at what this text is saying, and lots of other texts as well, it's saying that those things are for the master's account, not for mine. I am not responsible for my own provision. Ali used that, what was that little phrase you prayed just now? Um, yes, God delights in taking responsibility for our acts of obedience. 
God takes responsibility for our acts of saying yes to God because he's master. Does that make sense? Those worried about provision today, let me tell you that you have a good master. If you have a bad master, this is terrible news. If you have a bad master and you're in prison under that bad master or you're in slavery to that bad master and he refuses to provide you the food you need, the clothes you need, the appropriate shelter. We've all watched enough movies to kind of get a good grasp of what that looks like in wartime, right? Those worried about provision, listen to, listen to how powerfully Jesus teaches it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, therefore I tell you, some of you needed to come here today. This is not in the text, this is me. Some of you needed to come here today literally to hear this text read over you. Some of you are so worried about provision, so concerned about the future. Listen to what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? It's a profound text. He carries on about clothing and he says like how the grass and the lilies, they, they're not even, they can't even match King Solomon in all his splendor. And then verse 33, it says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, it's a command. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that true? And what happens in these, in these texts is that as we give ourselves to God, God in return gives us a guarantee that as those who have given themselves to Him, He will provide. He is provider. You seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things are added to you. You become, in the language we're using today, a willing, happy slave of God, and he will provide. The second thing that the psalm speaks about is direction. So you have provision, you have direction. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. I was a little bit worried in this preach, and I still am, to be honest, about the fact that I think many people don't actually find this very relieving like I do. I find it incredibly relieving to think that the direction of my life is not being set by me. That I'm not the one who leads Paul and leads five little kids and Kate into the UK right now is a huge relief in my heart that I'm saying, God, you speak, and so we follow. And the question of direction is really a question of who's in charge. Just like the prisoner slave that we, we're thinking about, he has no say in today's movements. He doesn't say, this is where I think I'll go today. This is the direction I think I'll take. He doesn't say, this is where I set up camp. This is how long we'll stay in this camp. This is what we'll do while we're here. 
I love that, that picture that Bates brought some weeks ago when he first shared the news about the UK and he brought the picture of the, of the cloud and the Israelites at night. And, and just reading into that, I've been reading a little bit more about it and it exactly says it there. Like sometimes it was just two days. These guys set up all these tents. There's one and a half million people at least is the estimate in that, in that Israelite camp. Can you imagine just digging toilets for that number of people? And then two days later, the cloud moves and we follow God's direction and off they go. Why? Because we are not our own. We are not ours. And then it carries on and it says, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And we kind of think like, leading me by green pastures, leading me by still waters, God restores my soul. Yes, 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 I love all of this. And then we get to the part where God is now going to lead us because it's the shepherd who leads them through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me. It continues, right? You need to see that link. That This is not some new psalm. This is not something that God is protecting them from. It's congruent with God leading them along pastures next to still water, and it's God who leads them into the valley of the shadow of death. They're still following the shepherd. And that, that teaches us that our, our sufferings and trials are not oopsies from God, not like some temporary loss of control or power. God loses control in those moments. In both quiet waters, wonderful green pastures, happy sheep moments, and terrified sheep walking through the valley of the shadow of death where there is evil. The direction of both those herds of sheep are being set by God. Number one, provision. Number two, direction. Do you see why it's so critical to truly, truly grasp what a good God we have? If you don't truly believe in the good Father... If you still got some kind of grid of your earthly father who's broken and just like me with my kids, who's trying their best to show them something of God but making a meal of it some days. If that's still the grid that you're looking at God and then God says, hey, hey, come here, Paul, come here, we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. If that's the grid that I've got of God, I'm, I'm an extremely reluctant sheep. I'm like one of those dog walkers you see. That dog wants to go one direction and the owner's going the other direction. And if you're lucky, you've got a little chihuahua and they're just walking and it's just getting dragged behind you. If you're not so lucky, you've got a big Doberman and it's pulling you that direction, right? This is why it's so critical to see why God is so good. We need to know that he's caring for us even when the direction that he's taking in us seems opposite to what our self-care ideas are. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Proverbs 3 says it like this. Trust in the Lord. Trust is that word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In other words, don't just do what seems right to you. Don't just seems, do what seems intelligent to the community around you, the university. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. He'll show you where to go. Number three, so we have provision, we have direction out of the psalm. And again, I just want to keep on pressing into us. Hopefully this is coming over you like it does over me as relief. 
And you're just going like, I thought I was in control of the direction of my life. I thought I had to decide. I thought I had to provide. I thought I had to do all of these things. And hopefully as we begin to understand more of who this good father is, it's actually just a a relief. Thank you, God. Thank you that you show me. The third one, I, I didn't find a good word for it, but I called it duty. It says he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And what I'm trying to communicate here is God leading us in ways that he has prepared for us. Paths of righteousness, right? Sanctification, these kind of ideas. But quite simply, the, the, the idea I'm trying to get is the master is the one who decides what my daily duties are. He's taking me to righteousness and he's showing me what my daily duties are. Just like for a prisoner or a slave. They don't wake up and they say, today I think I will have a dot, dot, dot day. I'll have a stay in bed day. I'll have a this day. I'll have a that day. It's this realization that we've been bought with a price. Even our bodies are not ours. Even our time is not ours. Ephesians says it like this. It says, for it is by grace, it's Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Listen to this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not to earn your salvation, but because you've been saved, you now have pre-prepared works that God says, this is what I want you to do with your life. Think about it. Do you live like that? Do we wake up in the morning and say, Lord, you have a specific plan for me to do today. There's duties that you want me to do. Help me do them. I don't think our lives would look all that crazy different. You're still going to get up and go to work. You're still going to brush your teeth. You're still going to eat your breakfast. You're still going to have, in our case, five little kids running around and caring for them and loving on them and doing all of these normal life things. But something profound shifts when we begin our day with this idea, this deep realization in our hearts that it's not just mine. It's not just ours to just say, this is what I'll do. This is where I'll go. This is what I'll, this is what I'll say. And then there's another little part in here in this, in this section. He leads me in paths of righteousness that is profound. You cannot find the path of righteousness. This is the idea. This is King David writing this, right? Imagine the man who, who's killed He falls in love with this woman, sleeps with her, makes her pregnant, gets her husband back from the front line, if you haven't read this in Kings and Samuel, gets her husband back from the front line, tries to get him to sleep with her, gets him drunk on the second night and tries to get him to sleep with her so that he can cover up the fact that she's now pregnant and they would have just had a premature baby. That doesn't work. So he sends him back to the front lines, and this man himself, Uriah, carries the letter which signs his death warrant to his commander, which says, put Uriah in the front of the fiercest fighting, and then pull the man back and leave him to die. And he commits murder in that way. This is the man who, of all men in the Bible, seems to, someone once said that if David wrote as many psalms as we think he did, he must have been schizophrenic, because it's like... It's, multiple personalities seem to come through in these psalms like it's like it's just crazy that the same person is writing this and the same person is writing this and the profound part of this is that of all the people in the bible david knew what it was like to to be unrighteous he knew what it was like to sin 
but he knew the redemption of God. You go and read his Psalms. This is one of them. He leads me. He leads me where I can't go. He leads me into paths I can't find, into paths of righteousness. Number four, the fourth thing we see in this psalm is, is protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you notice that little word? Through. I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let me ask you, who's responsible for the slave's protection? Who's responsible to protect that slave, to defend that slave? It doesn't take much looking around to realize that there are very many valleys of the shadow of death in our world. It doesn't take much to look around and see that evil abounds. There seems to be no end of man's ability to produce evil. Every new thing that comes out somehow gets twisted. I was just looking at, I was reading an article about the meta, what's it, the, the, what's the universe thing, the, the metaverse? I don't think it's going to work, but it's, <laughs> I actually do. And I was just reading about how in this space already just sin is, it wasn't a Christian article, but it was about like this child going in, and I won't give you all the details, but I think it was an eight-year-old who went in as this avatar, and suddenly this child was surrounded by more than likely men, avatars, who now wanted to do all these things. And, and it's like in a, this, this woman writing the article was just saying how scary it was that she was, in this, she was in the same little world that they were all in. And she was listening to this dialogue, but there was no ability to walk away. There was no, like you're in the same world. And I just thought how perverse, how broken that just the inception of something which is meant to be like this, re, this, this virtual reality, right into this virtual reality. What's the first thing that rushes in? Lust, brokenness, sin, right there. It's just, and it just left me with this thought, like is there no limit? Is there nothing that we can create which is not just then tainted with Sin. Some of you are experiencing the valley of the shadow of death in some way or another in your life right now. You feel like you're walking right through the valley of the shadow of death. And we need to know that we have a shepherd. We need to know that we have a good shepherd, a wonderful, sacrificing, good, good shepherd. And friends, this is, this is one of the most um, profound thoughts in, in Christian suffering is that he doesn't take you out all the time. We don't preach a prosperity gospel. It's not just health, wealth, and yeah, let's all get better. Like God doesn't say, even though you walk around the valley of the shadow of death, or over, or under, or somehow you escape it. He says, no, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So there's no point in the psalm that the, that it's, that the promise is that he takes us out. Quite the opposite. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But our great comfort, and this is the fifth thing from the psalm, is his presence. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's why we fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As we walk with God for longer and longer and grow in truly understanding who he is, how precious this truth becomes to us. As you walk with God, and you have more and more revelation of who it is that God is. It's like when you watch a movie 
and the character doesn't know the kind of greatness of the other person in the movie, in an earthly sense, right? And as the movie unfolds, this person becomes more and more aware of what this person is to the world, or who they are, or who they really are, right? And then they get, this movie like shows them getting more and more in awe of this person that they just thought was someone they met on the street, but actually she's this person, or she's that person, or he's that, whatever it might be. It's like that, but in a much more profound way, that as we walk with God, and then we start to read scriptures like he's with me in the valley of the shadow of death. And we go, this God is with me, who understands everything about me and still loves me fiercely. This God who never misunderstands me. When I can't, when I can't pinpoint my own motive, when people are saying, this is your motive, this is, and they've misunderstood me or they've accused me of certain things, when I go into the space with Jesus, I'm so safe. It's the most profound relationship. It's the only relationship. Kate and I can never have this kind of relationship. We try our best, but it falls short all the time. Never, never in any human space can you have a relationship like this where we can read, for you are with me. And it brings the same sense of safety and peace and challenge. Because God also knows my motives. When I think I'm doing something for good motives, sometimes God goes, hey, that looks a bit more like, like that to me. That's not so great. Are you still following me? These are the reliefs we receive as we accept a willing, happy slavery or imprisonment to God. Provision? It's not mine to worry about. Direction? Speak clearly, God, I will follow. You tell me, I'm coming. We go through the valley of the shadow of death. You lead me next to wonderful green pastures. In both of them, we walk with you. Our duty, what is it you want me to do, God? Today, what do you want me to do? Protection. I don't have to fight to look after my family. I don't have to fight to look after myself. This is God's job. It's God's job. I am with you. Presence. I am with you. The big idea, we are all slaves. We choose who or what we are enslaved to. So that's, that's the relief of being God's slave. But I want to speak about another kind of slavery, and it's going to be quite quick, and we've got some great illustrations with a big milkshake. Who wants a chocolate milkshake? Anybody want a chocolate milkshake? Eh? I mean, we're not there yet. But the second thing, I, this is really only two things I wanted to speak about today. The first one was the relief of being God's slave. The second one is freedom from sin's slavery. This is your other option. If we are not slaves to Christ, we are slaves to something. And that something is sin. It says in verse 5, You prepare a table before me. No guesses for what this is. In the presence of my enemies. Okay, we're going to look at that line just now. What does that mean? You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is what it begins to mean. We're going to do an illustration in a moment to help. But as we are enslaved to Christ, so our slavery to the previous kings of this world get brought into subjugation 
by the greater king who is now our master. So if you give yourself into willing slavery to Christ, who is the greatest king of all kings, the greatest master of all masters, then it stands to reason that the, the masters who had you before, the things you were enslaved to before, are now lesser masters because they are under a greater master. Does that make sense? Okay, let me explain it to you like this. And we're actually going to do this illustration just now. One of the, one of the ways that this text in Scripture is to be understood is in quite a literal sense. So in the days when David, King David was writing this, often kings would rise up against a king. So in David's case, you read that all through his life. There would be kings who would form allegiances or alliances, and they would come and they would fight against David, including his own son Absalom, right? And everyone was trying to align themselves. So it would all start out with a line, a line, a line. Can I get Joab, the commander, to come with me? Can I get this king? Can I get this oak? Can I get this oak? And the more you could get together, the happier your party. And then you'd come and you'd fight against King David, the great king or against Nebuchadnezzar, or against, you can see this all through history, not just in the Bible, all through history. One of the historic acts recorded of what they would do if they defeated that alliance that came against them, right? So you can read about how they would blind kings, they would do all sorts of things to make these, sometimes they would just kill them, whatever, they would try and capture these kings in some kind of show of dominance or power over these kings. And one of the things that they would do is they would tie up these kings in front of them in the dust on the floor. So just imagine we've got like five or six kings seated here, tied up, possibly blinded, possibly they can still see, who knows, but they're pretty beaten up, they've just come from battle, it wasn't friendly, it wasn't hygienic. All right, and these six kids, six kids, six kings. <laughs> whew, don't psychoanalyze that. <laughs> are here on the floor, bound in slavery. They are now slaves. And as a sign of that slavery, it's quite a cruel sign in some ways, they would set up a table in front of these now imprisoned kings who would have been used to tables just like this, but much bigger and fancier and not chocolate milkshake as much as beef and things. They would set that up, and these kings would know all about having had that power and sitting at that table. And then the king who had defeated them would sit down at that table and feast in front of them. It's quite a thought, eh? Now, that's not a... That's not a a pretty thing. That's like a brave art kind of scene. But when you read it and you understand what is going on in this psalm where David says, You, God, you prepare a table before me. You, you lay a table, God, for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Are you beginning to get this picture? That as we become slaves to God, and I know the metaphor only goes so far because it's, it's, it's not a great one in terms of the visual. We don't want that to happen. But we're going to do an illustration, and I want to show you who our previous masters are. So I need, I, need, um, I need a King David, but I'd really like it to be a woman just so that we can just break some of these taboos this morning. So, And I'm going to... I'm, I'm gluten intolerant and I'm sugar intolerant and so people who are, are these things intolerant um, and you can't eat them because they make you feel terrible, you know how tempting this kind of stuff is, right? 
This is our, this is our, um, our feast. And I just, I just did this extremely selfishly. Karen actually got all of this, or Robin, I don't know who got it this morning. But they, they're fresh. Oh, look at those ones. <laughs> look at those, eh? And for someone that's intolerant to these things, you, these are the things you most desire, right? It's always the things you can't eat that you most want. So we've got chocolate milkshake and we've got a whole spread, I'm not going to touch them, of donuts. And we just need a King David. So who would like to be a King David? Um, Nathan, as far as I last checked, you come on up, Rosanna. And help yourself. Help yourself. Go for it. Eat your donuts. You can carry on while you're doing that. You can eat some healthy stuff as well, which I don't know, I don't know who put that there. But while we're doing that, I'd like, some, I'd like some other kings to rise up in opposition to this wonderful table. Who would, who would like to come? I need five. Come on. Here's one of the kings. Would you... No, would you, would you stand and, and hold that? <laughs> I didn't choose that deliberately. I'm just taking it straight off the top. Yes, Remy or Nathan or both of you come together. Okay, this one. Uh, you boys, you can hold. One of you hold that side, one of you hold the other side there. No gossip. Who else? Who, who else have I got here? Not so many volunteers now that I... Don't you hold that. I know it's a light moment, but I really want us to let some of these... Come on, I need another one. Come on, Mark. No, both of you, come. I've got, I've got plenty. Come on. Pride. Anyone struggle with pride? Are you so humble that you're proud about it? <laughs> Greed. We, we don't... Yeah, come on, Sean. I've got one more. I've got a special one for you, I think. Oh, yeah. We don't call it greed anymore. We just call it shopping. <laughs> right? Consumerism. And then this one. I don't know who doesn't struggle with this. Shout out if you, if you don't agree. Okay. These are our kings. These are our kings who formed an alliance. Now, like we've been saying the whole morning, you only have two options. Either you're a slave to Christ or you're a slave to the world. This is what Ephesians says. Once you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the prince of the powers of this world, now you have been made alive in Jesus Christ. This is the whole teaching of Ephesians chapter 2. It doesn't say, well, you can also have this option and you can also have this option. And so in the illustration that I'm giving you, and th just think about these things, guys. We could have put loads more on here, right? There's, whatever it is that you feel that God is getting you with this morning. But you guys, won't you sit down with your signs? Keep your signs if you can facing that way. But face rose on. So keep, like, like that, yes. There we go. You've got it. You've got it. Fa and, and sit down. As I was explaining that metaphor of kings. This is what, guys, this is, this is the moment what God wants to do in your life today. Seriously, I know it's a fun moment, but I want a soberness in our hearts to see that this is what God wants to do. God wants to subjugate the kings. Some of you are struggling with fear. You are crippled by fear. It grips your heart. You have panic attacks. You don't know how to stop worrying. 
You read and you feel condemned when I read Matthew 6 or Matthew 5. Do not worry, it says. Do not worry. And I tell you, that's a command. It's Jesus giving a command. But you have no idea how to stop. The only way that you can stop is when Jesus says, come and sit at the table I've prepared for you. Come and eat a better meal. Come and eat a different meal. Look at what I've prepared for you. Some of you are struggling with many of these things. Lust, greed, selfishness. These things can be habits that form in our lives that begin to make addictions which feel like we can never be free. Some of us have been trying to get free of things of lust for years and years and years. In the dark, quiet places of our minds or in our rooms or whatever it is, these things keep surfacing again and again and again and we feel unable to beat them. And this morning through Psalm 23, God is saying, I have won. I have defeated the enemy. I prepare a table before you. God prepares it. You can't do it. It's not more effort. It's not more controls on your phone that's going to stop you or like, you know, covenant eyes, I think it's called. That's not going to really, it's going to help. It might help. I'm not saying that it's not going to help you, but it's not going to be what ultimately defeats it. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And then you know what the beautiful thing is? Come here. Come here, Debs. It's not just Roseanne. Go and get your... Stay there. Stay there, Roseanne. Stay there. But you go and help yourself to some donuts. You've been dying to eat them all day. Come on. <laughs> I've watched you. Come and get some food. And this is what... This is what the gospel does, right? And we could just keep on going. We're going to do this basically with communion just now. This is the reminder of communion. But effectively, go, eat it. That's the, eat it. Grab it and run. Can we, can we give them a hand? Thank you, all of you guys. Thank you so much. Are you giving me back my selfishness? I am my gossip. Great. Thanks. Does that make sense? That's my whole point too. Freedom from sin slavery. I want to read this psalm one very last time. And I want to show you Jesus in this psalm. And then we're going to literally come and you can eat whatever's left over if you like. And we're going to take communion together, which is effectively the feast which remembers what Jesus has done. When we eat communion, we remember the defeat of our enemies sitting at our feet. That's what we remember. We remember that Jesus came and did this. So when you read this and you think about Jesus' life, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus born into poverty, looking to God for his whole life. If you're watching The Chosen, it's just I'm watching it again. We were in season two at the moment. It's profound. I don't know how you can get through that thing and not cry. And like almost every episode, it's just, it's deeply moving. Jesus displays, I will not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And now we see very clearly, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. There's one profound difference in Jesus. On the cross, what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why are you not with me? Why have you forsaken me? 
And what Jesus is crying out is, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm in the, in the midst of my hardest valley. I'm in the midst. And in that, now we don't quite understand it, but somehow the father needed to turn his face away from Jesus so that Jesus understood the depth of what he was carrying. And Jesus went down to hell for three days. We spoke about this in our flourishing series, how to everyone except God the Father and the Holy Spirit, it looked for those three days, like or two days, that Jesus had failed. It looked like it was a failed plot. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But because that happened to Jesus, it can never happen to you. Never. Not one person on the planet apart from Jesus will ever be able to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And actually have it be true. For everyone else, it'll just be an emotional experience of God, I feel like you're far away. But you can know that Psalm 23, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. We can speak about these things another time. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Presence. I'm with him. I live in his house. I'm together with him and he's defeated my enemies. Father, as we close this morning... I want to thank you for all that you're doing in our hearts. I want to thank you that you're teaching us through little step by little step by little step to trust you. God, it is hard. Every living example we have of those around us teaches us, teaches our hearts that we need to protect them, to keep them to ourselves, to withdraw our trust, to pull back every little experience. God, we have some wonderfully positive ones too, but so much of it is tainted with our own sin and our own brokenness. And it's so hard to come to you and to truly say, you are my shepherd and I fully trust you. I completely trust that you are good. You're not tame, but you are good. God, this morning my heart is burdened with sin which has caught up our lives and brokenness, result of sin, which has caught up in our lives and just this sense of sheep lost, sheep with broken leg or fallen down a ravine or just lost, just feeling lost. God, there's no words I can say to really help that except to say, Father, Help. Help, God. Where there's addiction, not even to a substance or to pornography. God, just sometimes just addiction to anxiety. Just we've, we've got used to it. It's like the, 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 the sea that we swim in all day. Fear, anxiety. And we don't know what to do when it's not there. Even those kind of addictions, Lord. We ask that, just as the psalm so powerfully illustrates, that God, you would show us how you're setting a table for us, right in the presence of our enemies. And the enemies are still there. They're present, but they're powerless. Because a greater king 
has become our master. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus. Just for a minute or so, won't you make this personal? Just let God speak to you. And just in your heart, and whatever words you want to use, just you cry out, help me, God. Give me hope again. Let me trust again. Spirit, we commit our hearts to you afresh, Jesus, our Savior, our Master, and we ask that you'd lead us, guide us, protect us, give us our daily duties, Lord, give us direction. In Jesus' name. Let's break bread together, this wonderful feast that we do. Can I ask this morning, um, would you get the bread, would you get juice if you're a Christ follower? Just a reminder, if you, are, if you do not follow Jesus, this is a moment where we're not trying to exclude you deliberately. We're not trying to be mean, but Scripture teaches quite clearly that this is a moment that is for those who believe in Jesus and have surrendered their hearts to Him. And so in some way, even that can be a wonderful gift to those who don't know Christ. I know in the moment it feels like, ah, that's so mean. But actually it's a wonderful gift because it does remind us that God has invited us into something different. He has invited us into a family and that we can come. And so won't you come and get bread, get drink together. And in, in smaller groups, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to let this word sink into our hearts. And then please go out and have fun and have a wonderful Sunday. There's coffee, there's tea. Enjoy your Sunday and thanks for being with us.